connecting to the AOC Podcast Network. Enjoy your stay. So, good morning. Um, I'd like to welcome all of you this morning. This is um, Le Cadeau Podcast. And today my my guest is uh, Mel Harrington. Huval, that would be Melanie, but I call her Mel. So, Mel, welcome to Le Cadeau Podcast. Hi, Becca. I'm happy to be here. Me too. So, um, basically, I did a CD a long time ago called the Le Cadeau, and it was my intention to talk about the gifts of the culture that we come from, the French-speaking Louisiana people, including the gift of healing and including cooking. You did cooking with a twist. I did do some cooking with a twist. So let's start there. Tell me about the the cafe you opened. You were overqualified to do that, but that's okay. <laughs> I was totally had no idea what I was getting into. Talk about a leap of faith. Um, just for years in the back of my mind, I had... Uh, had an idea of opening a coffee shop that had a strong emphasis on celebrating uh, local culture in all of its forms, um, percolating through my brain, and uh, an opportunity arose in uh, Burbridge. I guess it was 20... When was that? It seems like yes, around 2012, I guess. Yeah. And uh, so I, I opened Joie de Vivre uh, Coffee and Culture Cafe and ran that for three years before passing it on to somebody else. But um was really happy to kind of create a community living room, I guess, for our It little. was that, yeah. And, uh, and to offer some alternatives to... um some are just other options and other choices. So all of our food was very health focused and uh, vegetarian and um, nothing fried, nothing fried, <laughs> not a single deep fried thing. Um, and it was all freshly made. Uh, I cooked and baked everything there. Um, I wanted it to be, you know, food for the soul. And I wanted what we offer to be food for the soul. So um, we had, you know, we were able to share lots of live music with folks, um, celebrate local musicians as well as musicians who were passing through. We were able to offer uh, literary reading opportunities, book signing exactly. events, film screenings. My son is a musician, and Drew did some some things there, and then mm-hmm. uh, Greg. Drew and I and everybody's mutual friend who is from the area had done some photography, so his his work was available. And, and both both Drew's efforts uh, and Greg's were connected to the um, preservation of the Atchafalaya Basin. Which is huge. Yes. Um, so both of them really helped to raise awareness and educate and inform people about what was happening and what could be done to um, help preserve this tremendous environmental and cultural asset that we have. And when I said you were overqualified, um, 
what are you qualified or not qualified for? <laughs> we're all we're all qualified to do everything we can uh, over here. But but what is your degree? Uh, what did you study that made you have the the vision was not just about vegan food. That was, I think, the challenge. Um, you know, in in terms of we don't necessarily eat healthy, but damn is good. And you were able to take it's healthy, and it was still damn good. So that's like thanks, way super. Okay. So what are your what are what is your background in in terms of culture? Your your education related to any culture? Well, you know, I was I was born in uh, Vermilion Parish and. Raised in Terrebonne Parish, and I've lived in St. Martin Parish for almost 20 years now. But I did spend some time um, out of state. I spent uh, about 10 years out of state. And um, I think that's when I was really awakened yeah, to the richness of our culture. You have to yeah. leave home to know what was at home. Yeah, because yeah. when you're immersed in it, you, you don't appreciate it as fully. For me, at least, exactly. that was my experience. And um and yeah, I came back very intentionally uh, as I got a little older and uh, knew that I would be hoped that I would be having kids one day. I really uh, wanted to be closer to family, and also, you know, my grandparents were aging, and I just felt like I was missing out on a lot with uh, family. But my educational background, I studied uh, human development and family relations, uh, is my first degree, which was. Uh, very much like a social work and counseling type mm-hmm. degree. Um, and then my master's degree is in applied cultural anthropology. Right. Um, and then I, I guess I've just always wanted to serve in some way. So I've done a lot of social work type, um, jobs. I've worked at group home, for, group homes for uh, mentally and physically challenged adults. I've worked at group homes for, um, teen boys with emotional issues. I've worked at homeless shelters. Um, but after graduate school, um, I really wanted to do more to, um, address lack of tolerance with regards to diversity and especially around race relations. Right. So, um, I was the head of an anti-racism initiative in Southern Georgia for a few years that focused on institutional racism. Then when I came to, um, back to Louisiana, uh, I worked as an ethnographer for a while. Um, I did an internship with a, uh, an organization called Cultural Survival. Uh, I worked with a diversity coalition with the city of New Orleans. So there was just a variety of things that I was able to do. Well, I um, didn't know how overqualified you were when I said you were overqualified. No, it doesn't make me overqualified. <laughs> I mean, I didn't understand the extent of your background, but that's really extensive. And so w- where, go on if you want to say more, but now where do you work? Now I work at Vermilionville, uh, Lafayette's uh, premier living history and folk life uh, museum. Um, and it's it's been a real nice coming together. Uh, after my children were born, I went back to school to become certified to teach, which is something I had done a little of prior, but uh, something I had always felt like I could do because I really enjoy working with young people. And uh, so I taught in the public school system for several years before opening the cafe. And then um, after I sold the cafe, uh, I still wanted to be involved in some way with students and teachers. Um 
but the classroom just didn't feel as good a fit for me. And so uh, Vermilionville was advertising for an education coordinator. And uh, I've been really fortunate to be able to work with a good team of people there. And um, it, it's been a very empowering and creative experience. It's exciting. And you have all this other life experience to bring to the table. And that's so, that's so, uh, it, it, it gives you, um, a broad ability to serve and to incorporate things on a lot of levels that people wouldn't necessarily be able to incorporate had they never left. That thing, that's exciting. Well, I worked at Vermilionville off and on since its inception. And so we have that in common. And uh, what what can you say about what happens at Vermilionville in terms of healing and healing in our culture? So Vermilionville does not – the Vermilionville serves which cultures? Well, um, I mean, we, we hope to serve all cultures exactly. and to be as inclusive as we can. Uh, in particular, the, the time period we look at and the cultural groups we look at are the primary cultural groups of that time period. So from 1765 to about 1890 is our historical focus. And um, we look at the Akkadian culture, Creole culture, and the culture of um, people of African descent at that time, and um, Native American cultural right. group that was um, indigenous to the area. So do you know Greyhawk Perkins? No, okay. I don't. I've so, heard of him. You need to invite him. I'm just, you know, he used to come and visit a lot. And, and, uh, and I worked there and uh, I met Greyhawk and, uh, and he is, uh, he's Native American and he, he teaches about his own culture and he used to come and I knew he was a healer. And so we'd sit and eat jambalaya and, and, but then how do you talk about healing? So we just knew that we did this, but I didn't know how he did it and I wasn't sure how I was or going to. And I never knew that I'd do traiteur work at Vermilionville or, or, or present that as a character. And so now he does music. Mm. Well, he always has, and so have I. But he did a whole CD about the 13 moons. And, and he was led to do this in his own way, as in like, this is how we've been doing it, but give it your own twist. So he went to France. And he did with French musicians and came back and has performed here. So he could now come back with this modern-day contribution about the Native American culture with with music. It's, it's, it's really like he did this sort of jazz influence of music, and it was so something. So what does... Um, so anyway, that's all. I just want to throw that out there. So what else can you say about how healing is now portrayed or interpreted at Vermilionville? Well, I, you know, I think we we uh, try to look at traditional forms of, of healing, and um, we have a, a healing garden with a lot of traditional medicinal plants. Um, we bring wonderful people like yourself <laughs> in regularly for a, a healing series. Um, and I, I just think culturally in this region um, – it seems to me that people are more open to alternative healing, uh, holistic healing, a traditional healing. You know, and even having grown up immersed here, I can remember when I was like 12 years old <laughs> and my mom took me 
to a treta, <laughs> and it, I had a wart on my finger that we had tried everything for. I had been to the doctor. They had tried to burn it. I had tried all of these over-the-counter medicines. Nothing worked. And so uh, we had gone to visit my grandparents, and my grandmother said, oh, you need to take her to see. I don't even remember the lady's name. Um, but she was right down the street from my grandmother's. And I, on the way over there, my mom told me, and, you know, I was your typical seventh grader rolling my eyes thinking, oh, yeah, right, like this is mm-hmm. going to work. <laughs> and she told me, you know, you, you really you shouldn't say thank you afterwards. This is a gift she wants to share. And um, we got there, and the, the woman didn't speak any English. She only spoke French. So my mom spoke to her and told her what we needed. And she was a, a petite lady, and she grabbed my hand and very gently, and at the time, I didn't realize that she was uh, making the sign of the cross. Right. Um, over the, the, but just very, very gently, and she was saying some things in French. Uh, I think she may have said the Our Father in French. And uh, and after a little while, she just patted my hand, and Mom said, "Okay, let's let's go." And we walked out, and I can, I was like, "Oh yeah, right, Mom. Like this is gonna work, you know." The very next day, I was doing something, and I knocked my hand against something. Um, and within 24 hours, the the wart was gone. Exactly. <laughs> so it totally shifted at a young age, my thinking about, you know, ways that we can heal. And right, and that you can at least accept that this was legitimate. Right. And it wasn't what someone said or what someone didn't say, you had this experience. And what do you do with an experience that doesn't make sense with, we never learned about that in school, and, you know, how, how do you incorporate that experience and somehow it, it inspired you in some way? And it would be lovely for us to incorporate that into school. Um, I mean, and I think the more we learn about traditional healing, um, you know, herbs or plants that were used, now science can confirm that there are these medicinal qualities, you know, exactly. that, uh, that we knew through folk wisdom. But um, I, I think it's an important part of our story that kids don't hear enough of. Exactly. So kind of what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you is, why would you believe that? Why would you believe that people can do that? And what did it take to be one of those people who did that? And then did you tell your friends that she healed you and your ward fell off? Or did you want to just kind of keep that close to your chest because that's so weird I don't even want to tell my friends? Oh, no, I told my friends. I can remember. And, you know, they they were uh, adolescents as well. Oh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, the the older I got, the uh, and and being somebody who was – uh, taking a lot of psychology and sociology classes and anthropology classes, um, it became clear to me that there's a lot of this world that we might not be able to um, explain. It's mysterious. Right. But that doesn't mean it's not there. Or it doesn't exactly. exist. And there's also a lot of things like, I think my youngest child should have become a weather woman. Right, because she always is into clouds and this kind of stuff. And so every once in a while, I'd say, "Oh, look how beautiful the sky is!" And then she'd say, "Yes, well, those are nimbus, and those are cumulus nimbus." And then by the time she finished <laughs> telling me, I'm like, "Like, 
do I care? But I mean, I could never discourage her, but I'm like, so when often we find a scientific explanation of this, like today quantum physics can bring us a scientific explanation, it doesn't solve the mystery, right? So even if I can tell you scientifically that through the laws of quantum physics, which, you know, everything is not really matter, everything is really vibration, which we know from electrons, protons, and neutrons. Well, how do you do that anyway? And there was never a school to do that. It was something that we just trusted. And so how do we teach people to do something through trusting? Uh, Especially today that a lot of the old ways have not been maintained. And so I think just having the thought and the opportunity to talk about this or have people see what what there is in in terms of healing it, it at least allows us to respect what was absolutely and I, I think there's i think the mystery is important to maintain because it humbles us well exactly like you know you said that you couldn't say thank you well why couldn't you say thank you According to my mom, it was a gift that was meant to be shared. Right. And um, she wasn't expecting to And be then thanked. according to some people, if you say thank you, it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I mean, my own take on that is that it is a gift, but it's a gift that that is you making a request. So it is not I who does this. It is it is source or God or spirit, however you understand uh, a force bigger than you and I together that I'm calling into this this space. So so given that, it allowed you never heard of a treter bragging. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know you don't see advertisements for you it. You don't have it. Yeah. It was just a reality that existed, and so not saying thank you was n- allowing God to get the credit for what. We served in that way, but it wasn't about um, ego. How did you, when and how did you come to realize that you had a, a gift? Well, first of all, I think everybody does. And so when I used to, I worked at Vermeugenville as the, the first um, character to portray a traitor because, well, I could do it and I was there, so why not? And they said, yes, I don't remember who was the, the director at the time. And initially, I had been trained in Reiki and healing touch and the modalities of healing that are made available to anybody. And we created a group called the Holistic Wellness Network, and we were meeting at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, and that included traiteurs in the mix. And so this lady comes to me, and she goes, Are you a traiteur? And I'm like, Oh, no, but I wish I was, you know, because my grandpa was, but he died before he passed it on to anybody, as far as I know, uh, as far as we know in the family, because we kind of talked about it. So she looks at me, and she goes, well, do you want the prayer? (gasps) And I said yes, but in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but lady, I'm supposed to get this from a man, because they have, like, rules or... But I didn't say that out loud. I didn't even think it for too long. And so she gave me the prayer. So come to find out, her name is Miss Eva, and I went to high school with her daughter. Like, you know, we are related. And and so 
I was not going to start to treat for one thing after having a general experience of doing healing work. and But I was going to take her words. I was going to take the prayer. I was going to receive. And so she says, well, you know, this prayer is for sprained ankles, but you can use it for anything. <laughs> well, I didn't know there was such a thing, right? Because for us, you know, you see somebody for the headache and somebody for the earache and somebody for the stop the bleeding and somebody with sprained ankles. So she's giving me this as a general prayer. So instead of a traiteurs, we're always specialists, you know. And so then I became a GT, like I laugh about it. So that, so I just incorporated that in the work that I do, bringing in the essence of whatever has been culturally a part of me that we were born into. We didn't ask for this. And so that's that's when I did it. I was an I was an adult and had already survived cancer and was working and and incorporating healing in my life at, at the time. And it's it's just it's funny. And then once I gave a presentation at Asbury Methodist and I remember my youngest she goes, Mama, you going to that raspberry church? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And and I spoke to a group and one of the people there was Miss Eva's daughter. And when I told them the story, it went something like, Well, this lady gave me this prayer, but the words weren't in French. I mean, they sounded okay, but they weren't French because I speak French and I, I didn't have the audacity to, to correct the lady, right? And like no matter what these words are if she's been serving and healing people with them for years, what I'm going to say. So I kind of didn't say anything. But then I found out who her daughter was, and that made me happy because it was a familial or familiar or some, like, honest connection. And not long after that, um, Franz Amelinx used to teach at UL. He taught French. Uh, he has since died. But he sent me some prayers from a man named Nestor Guidry who lived between Abbeville and Kaplan, about where Hebert's Steakhouse is. And he just sent me these prayers, and I'm like, wow, because he was enamored and admired and respected this healing that belonged to this culture that had nothing to do with medicine, and, and the whole herb thing was separate from the prayer. And so he just wanted me to have this information. And so at first I'm like, why does he have it? He's not even Cajun. You know, he was Episcopalian. He wasn't Catholic. But but then after I got over that, and it took probably 20 seconds, I flipped through the prayers, and there was a prayer for sprained ankles. And it was written in French that I understood it. And so it's not exactly what we say that does the work. It's It's who we are and who we call in. You know, it's technically. Mm-hmm. So how do we keep these things going? And that's kind of been, how would we get this in schools? I don't know. I think it would, with the way our school systems are set up now, you'd have to make it a required part of the curriculum. And, um, you know, broadly, teachers now uh, can look at different elements of culture. Um, but it would be really nice, I think, to have something specifically that Exactly. It was reflected. We uh, used to have an arts and education program. Uh, Renee, Renee Guidry used to be 
and 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 they would bring artists to Vermilionville. They were hosted at Vermilionville, and then teachers could come and meet the artists and invite them individually into their classrooms. So I've always wanted to be able to do that, and and I did a CD, so maybe we could create something that could at least be available as a cultural aspect. Not that we're trying to convert anyone to Catholicism or make everybody become healers, but if we don't let them know what was that's kind of not allowing them to know what they can be, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's empowering for a lot of people um, learning any new dimension of their cultural identity, you know. And my, my race relations work, um, I did a lot of uh, research on uh, – kind of what led to cultural a sense of cultural pride not a not a sense of cultural superiority but a sense of cultural pride versus a sense of cultural superiority what did you find um what i found particularly with uh neo-nazi skinhead groups um is that they're recruited they generally come from families who don't have strong cultural identities so there's not if you ask you know, what their ethnicity is or what their heritage is, they, they generally can't answer. All they know is that they're white. Um, and they're recruited usually between the ages of 15 and 19 um, and taught that their whiteness is what makes them superior. So that's right. what they cling to, you know. Um, whereas uh, groups where kids grow up having um, a sense of pride in who they are and where they came from, um, they don't really have to step on another group to feel superiority. Do you, does that make yeah, sense? it makes total sense. Um, and just things like your, you know, stories of resilience. And um, so my, my great-grandfather was a trapper and a fisherman off of Marsh Island in the right. Vermilion Bay. He... Uh, he uh, he lived on a houseboat with his wife and children, and when their family got big enough, and he was functionally illiterate, but when their family got big enough, he built another boat, and in exchange for room and board, a woman came to live on that boat, and during the day, it was the classroom for my grandmother and her siblings. Wow. Um, and in the evenings, you know, it was, it was her space. But um, I think about what that, that way of life required the discipline it required the perseverance it required and when you when you speak to any of his children um they all had a good life you know right uh, um well the word community is coming because if someone doesn't know their past they also don't have a sense of belonging right so i think community is a big word and it's a reality that we had but we kind of thought what we didn't get it till later. Understand? So his children all had good lives. You said, yeah, they did. They all had good lives, and uh, and there was a lot of love, you know, in that family. And but hearing family stories and understanding the resilience on the other side of the family, I have a, a great grandmother who lost her husband when she was around 30 and she mm-hmm. had a bunch of kids right and so one of the ways she made ends meet was uh she drove the school buggy <laughs> she had a mule and a wagon and she picked kids up to bring them to school you know um 
She was a school bus driver before they had motorized right. buses. Yeah, right. my, my mama told me about that. She went to school in buses like that. Um, but also her children also, they had full successful lives. And just that, that resilience that, that you can overcome, uh, environmental challenges, that you can overcome personal hardships and survive and thrive. Right. Because, you know, it's not about the drama of the hardship. It's that you had what it took to make it through that. Right. You know, whatever. And you, a, you know, and, and a lot of it had to do with the network of support. Exactly. And here it's, it's, it's often familial, but it can also, uh, you know, just be through community groups and neighborhoods and exactly. other relationships. So this morning I was, um, a friend of mine had surgery and, uh, and I went with her and she is a nurse. And I, I said, you know, some people have gone to surgery with their friends as a healer, as an energy worker, as whatever you want to call that. I said, you know, if you want me to, I can. I'm like, we don't have permission, but we can. So I went back there. She said, yeah, come. So, so she introduced me to her OR nurse, and they were prepping her for surgery. And she said, well, I want your number. So, you know. We'll get that number to her. Then the doctor says he needs a healer too. Can he have your number? So, like, I'm laughing. Wow. Because you think, how can we get this to happen? Well, instead of getting it to happen, just do it if you can. That was kind of so. Then I, I, I did what I did and I measured her chakras and I was telling the nurse, I mean, I don't really know, but you can see some of these areas of energy in the body move more quickly than others move and so my 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 need to do anything with her is just to balance her out i don't know why one moves quicker than the other i don't have to say you need to adjust everything and so then i did a little session with my friend and then had to leave to do other things but it's not about choosing one way or the other it's about using everything we have to bring it forward. And I think that there's a lot of discussion that polarizes people, but that's not, we don't necessarily live in that polarization. Doctors and medical staff understand what they do has limits. And so, you know, I'm going to go back to that little surgery center and see what they feel and if we can. And if we can, we can just build a bridge. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to learn about us, and I sure don't need to learn how to do surgery, right? <laughs> it's not about changing roles, but it's about helping each other with what we have. And and that's a part of community. So while she was in surgery, I'm visiting with her dad, and we're talking, and of course we're laughing. And and he was saying how how important community was, and that today he cooks in cans. They even cook for hospice, right? as part of the service. And he goes, and people say, why you cook and why you make jams and jellies and give them away? He says, because I can. Because because we did that to support each other in community. But now we don't even know our neighbors. Right. So we can't know our neighbors and we can't go back to how it was, but we can take the aspect of community and create that for us now. And Vermilionville is a place that lets us know where you know, where we were and where we came together. 
So I have a question for you about the whole Tretar thing. So, and I don't understand this, so this is also a cultural question. The African Americans and the Native Americans and the French Americans and the German Americans and the Spanish Americans, how did we all come to speak French? How do we all come to speak French? Yeah, we didn't war with each other. We didn't own each other. Totally, like, say this is politics and you can't do this. We didn't necessarily have power over each other. But how did the language become the language of everyone who lived here? Um, th- well, I think it's just because of the French colonization and so many of the people who put down roots here. We were Louisiana territory, right. and then we were Spanish colony. I get that, right. but I mean, it's and like we went back to French. So, uh, I think that the the French language took hold right. early on in our history, okay. and we've never divorced ourselves. So, I, I invited a woman named Morning Dove, who is Homa, to come and give a presentation in Lafayette because I had heard her speak in Baton Rouge at a place called the Red Shoes. And when she finished saying what she said, and she was dressed in Indian regalia, and she showed us prayer ties she made and all this kind of stuff, at the end of her presentation, someone asked her to to say a prayer. And she prayed in French. Mm -hmm. And like, it touched me so deeply, I wanted to cry. Because I had never known anyone who claimed all that Native American and their rituals and their traditions and also say something in French. But I knew that it existed. So then someone asked her this question. They said, why are you talking in French? Why are you praying in French, you know? She goes, well, I think it was easier for us to learn French than to teach them our language. So we did. So I had a woman named Carla Woody who came, and she wanted to know about the gifts and the treacher thing. And so I had a gathering, and she interviewed me. And the thought that came from that interview is that if African Americans and Native Americans and European Americans all do this, but we do it in Catholic prayers and we do it in French, basically, with plants that are available here, but the plant thing was separate, does that make being a treter an indigenous gift? If the people are not all indigenous? This sounds like one of those questions we make up in catechism to stump the priest. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, is it? And, and so that's another thing I bring to the table. How did this happen to be? Because it's a grassroots thing. You don't become confirmed to be become a treasure there's no sacrament to become a healer it's a gift that's been passed on i don't know do you have any thoughts of that well i i mean i think there are definitely i think it's definitely an indigenous gift i mean it 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 can be shared beyond our culture um, but it comes from our culture and uh and i think you know different cultures have uh different gifts and that's what what makes the sharing so wonderful exactly just like the traditors who 
specialized, as you said. Yeah, you know, that's how they they did. Not everybody knew how to heal everything, but it was a community that's part gift. of that community and 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 relationship building. As know. opposed to a medicine woman or a medicine man who served the whole community, we all kind of yeah. That's exciting. So when you were at Vermilionville, how do you conceive of educating, and where do the programs come that you offer there? I mean, education is such a broad uh, term. Uh, of course, I, I I work with teachers and I work with students, but not in the way that I think most people um, think I would as the education coordinator. So a lot of times people think that I would be the person who would coordinate school field trips there. Um, and actually, that's our tour coordinator who does that. Um What's happened in our public education system um, is that with such a focus on testing and uh, producing standardized test results and scores um, and such a focus on dictating what I think is a pretty rigid curriculum, exactly um, a lot of the craft of teaching has gone away, and part of teachers who really um, think of teaching as a gift and a craft, uh, part of what they do is to try to take kids beyond the classroom. Right, into the real world. And see how knowledge applies to the real world. And so, you know, schools are having smaller and smaller windows and resources uh, to make it into museums and historic villages and other cultural venues uh, or outings. Um, So a lot of what I do is try to influence uh, resources that teachers have that they can bring to the classrooms to share um, and uh, develop easy access to resources for teachers. Um, so whenever I coordinate a professional development opportunity, there has to always be some connection to Vermilionville or that period in history or the cultural groups there. Um, but I want to give teachers a tool that they can easily access and um, that they can use to meet their student needs. Right. So I'm not, I don't just sit around creating... Uh, rigid lesson plans. Instead, I give them a database of resources every time they we do a professional development workshop there. Um, the other thing that we do is I, I do work with students, but I work with students of all all types. So exactly. we have a couple of partnerships with UL's School of Education. Um, and one of those partnerships, it's called our Vermilionville Education Enrichment Partnership. We partner with UL School of Education and with the Lafayette Parish School System. And uh, students who are in their senior year of education at UL mm-hmm. come to visit Vermilionville, learn a little bit of the history and the culture. Then they develop curriculum-based lesson plans. Um, they choose a site that they think is relevant to their lesson plan within our village, and then they offer uh, these lessons to kids that we will bus in from wow. one of the elementary schools uh, and this year from several high schools. Um, and we intentionally try to choose a school where uh, financially kids may not otherwise get a field trip so that right. they get a, a, a an enriching experience. Um, but the kids rotate through four or five 
different, very culturally specific and relevant lessons that also align with their curriculum requirements. Um, and it gives the UL students, you know, a little more practice at mm-hmm. implementing lesson plans and um, seeing what a, a school day rotating, you know, full of classes would be like. It gives uh, Vermillionville a chance for us to highlight and and shine a light upon our rich cultural history in this region um and then it gives the lpss kids an opportunity that they may not right. have otherwise had so that's been a really uh successful project it was started in 2012 um and has has done really well our, our evaluations that we get from that program are very very strong we've had some UL professors now uh use that as a model to present at education and data conferences and things of that nature. So don't you think that kind of a lot of people, I'm I'm speaking specifically of you and I, we still live as though we live in the tribe of where we grew up and in that community and in that culture. In some ways, like, like, you know, Ray Brasser. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Ray Brasser, what is his role over there? He's a board member at Vermillionville, and then he's been uh, a professor of anthropology at UL. Right. So he advises and helps things together. So he was my teacher at UL. So someone gave me the copy of a thesis that had been written in 1933. And so I didn't know what to do with it. Because although I have a degree in anthropology, like I'm not really an anthropologist. You know, if I'd want to be an anthropologist, I'd have to get... <laughs> A few more degrees. But I knew that it was such a gift, and it was written in the Negro-French dialect of St. Martin Parish by a Mr. Charles Bienvenu. So I gave it to Ray Brasser because I knew that as a professor he could do something with it. Okay. So then he says, well, we have to get permission from this man, Mamel. It was written in 1933. I'm thinking, well, I don't even know if he's alive. Well, he was alive, and he was 100. Wow. And he did this research at LSU, not UL. So he gave Ray permission for us to use it. So then Ray took it upon himself to work with Bill Fontenot and the Master Gardeners, and that's where that medicinal herb garden comes Ah. from. You know, I couldn't have done that. But I knew when I got that it was like a something, (laughs) like a big something, like I was off. I was so excited, like. So excited, and so, and so the day they dedicated it, I was able to participate. Now I don't have to still work at Vermillionville, and I didn't have to plant those plants. And Bill Fontenot was hysterical because he knows everything about Louisiana plants and more. And he goes, you know, we had to plant these weeds and make it look like they belonged in your yard when you would actually harvest them away from your home. But at least physically they're there. And so that's a big education, just just seeing that. And like yeah. we don't have to do everything, but if you live in a community and you share what you have with the other, even though it's not just like a boucherie or canned goods, it, we can still be creative and live in community and bring more than if we we're isolated or put that on a shelf. Oh, and we have so many opportunities here. You know, uh, recently I was at 
an area festival, cultural festival, and uh, my teenage children were with me. And my son, I asked if he was enjoying himself, and he said, yeah. But he said, Mom, look around, you know, other than you and Mr. Chad, I don't think there's anybody younger than 50 <laughs> in the crowd. Oh, yeah. And that was an eye-opener uh, for me. Um, it, it, and talking about education, for me, education is just about opening minds and uh, broadening worldviews. And it should be a lifelong process. Um, so as education coordinator, opening minds to things beyond the standard curriculum is really important to me. And last year, Vermilionville was very uh, honored to receive a, a National Endowment for the Arts grant where we were able to bring traditional musicians into schools and into classrooms to work with kids, many of whom had never um, – re- I mean, they, they knew a little bit about – you know, Cajun or Zydeco music, but um, many were musicians who had never played it before. Right. Um, who really, after working with these folk musicians, embraced, um, you know, those cultural music forms. And that's what makes my, my heart full, um, to be able to expose kids culturally to such rich aspects of our regional culture. That they didn't even know existed. Well, they know they exist, but I don't think they understand the richness of it. So like me moving out of Louisiana before, what what really made me heartsick when I moved out of Louisiana was um, I was in Connecticut at the time, and I was listening to public radio. One of the stations had a Cajun and Zydeco music program. (laughs) And uh, the announcer began the program by saying, uh, you know, that was the late, great Mr. Clifton Chenier. And he had just passed away. And my heart just kind of sank because, like, that was one more connection to home. Exactly. That kind of had passed on. So I had a lot of awakenings about my culture uh, around music and dance and not having that component. So we we have been able to share with the whole world about our music and about our food and about our dancing and our joie de vie. But we haven't been able to share about the spiritual component and the gift of healing. How can we incorporate that? Or do you have any thoughts? Or maybe we have to work on an education program. Yeah, maybe we do, huh? <laughs> um because well, that doesn't sell. But then when people keep coming back, then they want to know. So there is an interest and a desire and a heartfelt need. And the reality is we need healing now. And they're looking at healing people and the world are looking at in different cultures because we're no longer separated. We have become a global community in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I just think that every opportunity we have to discuss those things, use it. Um, so, you know, thank you for taking this opportunity to discuss this with me, and I hope everybody enjoys our podcast. Did you have anything you wanted to share in closing? We had no idea what we would say, and I don't remember what we said, but I think it'll be wonderful and interesting. It's always great visiting with you, it's just Becca, fun. and thank you for sharing your gifts thank you, with thank you. my family and with the community. 
Yeah, I love you, family. We're neighbors in all kinds of ways. That's right. <laughs> well, and but that's the reality of the world. We're all so connected exactly. that I can't understand why we wouldn't want to nurture those relationships rather than these divisions. That's and we can. That's the deal. It, it's still a possibility. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. We'll wave a flag to that. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you, Becca. Thank love you. you. I love you. Thank you for listening to Le Cadeau Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begno. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit aocinc.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on the AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.